It's Wednesday, August 3rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today for Motley Fool Rule Breakers and Supernova, David Kretzman. And for Million Dollar Portfolio and Supernova, Simon Erickson. Happy Wednesday, gents. Happy Good to be here. Wednesday, Chris. Thanks for being here. I didn't get the memo on the blue shirts. You're both wearing the blue shirts. Come on, Chris. Uh, Next time. Secret memo. This is what I leave town for one day, and then I just uh, it, it all falls apart. Next time, we'll coordinate. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, we're going to talk health and entertainment earnings today. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. Let's start with Fitbit. Shares up 10 percent because second quarter adjusted profit and revenue came in higher than expected. Um, they're also spending a lot of money. Simon on marketing on new products, but it looks like maybe it's working. I don't know. You tell me. It's a hot commodity right now, isn't it? Shares up ten percent. I feel like like Fitbit is continually beating estimates. Uh, they've they've sometimes beaten Wall Street estimates by more than a hundred percent of what consensus was expecting. Um, Chris, I am cautiously optimistic on this story. Fitbit makes the majority of their money by selling the devices themselves. They sold um, 11 million devices in 2014, and then 21 million last year. So they over 100% growth rate right now, or about 100% growth rate right now. And they they sold 5.7 million of them this last quarter. So they're they're on a run rate to do even better this year. But the thing that's catching my eye is they've got kind of two products, the Blaze and the Alta, which are their newer models that accounted for 54% of revenue. And the part of the conference call that I looked at that really has got me the cautious part of cautiously optimistic is that a third of sales were going to existing Fitbit owners. So there's a refresh in the cycle. If you buy an older Fitbit a couple of years ago and then you upgrade to one of the newer, sexier products right now, and I just think that that might be a problem as competition intensifies in this space if you can keep refreshing and selling to your existing customers. What do you think, David? I, I, I'm also cautious with, with Fitbit. I think I still have a sour, very sour taste in my mouth from GoPro, and I sort of see Fitbit <laughs> becoming GoPro 2.0, and that's not a good thing. Uh, Fitbit. The expectations for the company have been pretty low. The stock's down 75% over the past year. The results are good, but I think people are understandably cautious with this because this is a company, as Simon pointed out, they're very dependent on R&D and pumping out new products. When two new products that you just released a few months ago make up more than half of your revenue, it's understandable to see that R&D budget tick up. So the company. Uh, their, their earnings were down 60% uh, this quarter as a result of increased marketing and R&D costs. I mean, the balance sheet is strong. They have $760 million in cash, no debt, a, a P.E. ratio of 28. So, the valuation is reasonable, but I, I, with a company like this, I see even less potential for them to become kind of a software recurring revenue company compared to someone like like GoPro and with GoPro obviously it hasn't turned out well so I have a hard time seeing where Fitbit is in three years without this becoming a commoditized product and you know decreasing margins. They had some good guidance. This was as you indicated. Simon, this was a good quarter. I do feel like this is a little bit of one of and we see this from time to time. One of those. Um, one of those quarters that's a Rorschach test for investors. They see what they want to see. So if you're a bull, you, you, there are some things here you can point to that you like. If you're a bear on this company, the same thing. I, I think overlaying all of this is, uh, and this affects more than just Fitbit, but I think overlaying all of this is, I don't think there's anybody who knows with a great deal of certainty where this industry, wearable devices on your wrist, is going and once upon a time, people were looking to Apple and the iWatch and 
that was going to be the great disruptor. And I think maybe even a little bit of the the positivity that we're seeing with Fitbit is in response to that. That Apple's watch has been sort of slow to take off in the most recent quarter we talked about. You know, there there was almost no mention of it whatsoever. So, but I I think that's that's part of the challenge for investors right now. Is it's not just what's going on with Fitbit, Fitbit, and and what is the future over the next one to three years with this company? It's where is this industry going? Well, and how do you stay <clears throat> how do you stay relevant, right? I mean, how is this not a fad? How is this something that continues to continue to be relevant and in fashion, like blue shirts always are? Right. Of I mean, this is something that you know you got to stay. You, I think one of the most important questions is what is something users will pay you a monthly fee to Fitbit for to do for this device to do? It can already kind of count your steps. It can take your heart rate. It can now do your 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 BMI and do a bunch of GPS stuff, but. What are you willing to pay five or ten bucks a month for Fitbit to do for you? I don't think we have the answer to that question just yet. The interesting thing is we have seen the the number of active users they have at 17 million last year, and that doubled year over year. So people are buying the products and they're logging on. The next step is how do you get that recurring revenue? And to your point, Chris, when you look at the smartwatch industry uh, in, in the first quarter of this year, the, the smartwatch shipments actually dropped more than 30% year over year. And that's the when you look at any industry that Apple's entered, smartphones, tablets. Uh, with smartwatches, you're seeing that decline happen far faster than than you did with those other segments. So. Along with with what Simon said, it's hard to tell right now how much of this industry will sustain, how much of it is a fad, and again with Fitbit, I just have a hard time seeing where this company is in in three years. I have a hard time seeing their competitive position grow over the next few years. That I, I would be cautious as an investor. Second quarter profits for Electronic Arts came in much higher than Wall Street was expecting, and that's because they were expecting a loss instead of you know actual profits. <laughs> uh, they did lower guidance though, David, and that sort of seems like if you look at what's happening with shares of Electronic Arts, up ever so slightly, but it seems like the guidance is canceling out the uh, the surprise profit. Yeah, with with a company like this, quarterly and annual results will be lumpy. A lot of this depends on the timing of game releases, things like that. But the underlying company in this case, I, I feel like, is, is very strong. They have a lot of uh, franch- promising franchises on the horizon. They're seeing strong engagement from players. A couple stats the company threw out. Their Battlefield franchise had 11.5 million unique players. Uh, the latest installment of that franchise, Battlefield 1, which has been really well received based on trailer views and just general buzz, uh, that's launching in October. Um, Madden NFL, 16 unique players, up 20%. Madden NFL Mobile, monthly active users, up 25%. Then you have Star Wars, Star Wars Battlefront, 6.6 million players. So you kind of get the picture that they, they have strong franchises, both with EA Sports, and they're also venturing into these newer genres for them with action and shooter games, which is the, the, the biggest genres within uh, the video game space, about a $6 billion uh, dollar market opportunity. And I think that to me, the most astounding stat is when you look at the Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes uh, mobile game, this quarter, the average player logging onto that game every day spent two and a half hours a day playing that game. So that's, and that's actually up from the first quarter this year. Uh, so people are spending a lot of time on you, these games. You, you know, I noticed I hadn't seen you at your desk in a while. <laughs> <laughs> even Man, I got caught. Even, <laughs> even with the Pokemon Go craze, they're, they're still seeing that type of engagement? Yeah, there was actually a question about that on, on the conference call, and management essentially said, you know, we haven't seen a, a noticeable shift in our engagement on our mobile games uh, from Pokemon Go. 
I think Pokemon Go it demonstrates the opportunity for uh, companies to engage with players in a new way with augmented uh, reality, virtual reality, that stuff that Electronic Arts is invested in uh, for over the past couple of years. Uh, the companies really um, should have a nice presence with the PlayStation VR, which is coming out soon. And uh, supposedly they've been working on a Star World Star Wars Battlefront version for VR, which. Um, Based on you know early comments that I've seen from analysts, it, it should be a pretty pretty cool experience. Yeah, I think that the franchise word that you use there is is really the key for a company like EA because you can make a great franchise and just get revenue from a, from a core audience group out of that for years. And EA has done a great job with that. They said in their annual report last year that 55% of sales was from their three largest franchises. So the, the customers that like to buy Madden every year that it comes out, the, the, the FIFA sports, you know, every year in the Star Wars franchises, they keep coming back. And EA has done a pretty good job of now connecting them on the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can do things like the Ultimate Team. Um, you can maybe virtual reality stuff that, that's on the internet and, and just expands upon those core franchises that are important. For me, the, the question for a company like this is, what's your total addressable market going to look like? Are you going to continue to sell those existing core uh, diehard gamers that are two and a half hours a day playing Star Wars, the next the next upgrade of that every year? Or is there a possibility for an EA to expand that market into something, perhaps on a mobile device, uh, that makes their, their their user base even larger. And I think that's the question I have unanswered for this one right now. Yeah, I would say for EA, uh, the, the long-term opportunity here certainly is you have to watch how the company is expanding into the action and shooter genres. Traditionally, that's been a market dominated by Activision Blizzard with their titles. EA has done a great job with lifestyle simulation games like The Sims, uh, obviously uh, sports franchises they have close to 70% of that market. Um, but w- with titles like Star Wars, Battlefield, Titanfall, I mean, keep in mind, they, they have an exclusive license with Disney over the next decade or so to pump out Star Wars titles on mobile and consoles and other devices. So. You know, over the next five years, we'll have five new Star Wars movies. You'll see new game releases for Star Wars from EA. I think that that'll help them capture some some share in those new categories. So they've got a huge chunk of the sports video game market. But Simon, you and I were chatting briefly this morning. You don't consider this to be an esports company, though. Why is that? Um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, like the, the platform. I mean, like it's the games are definitely in place there. But when you look at something like a Twitch or like the um, you know these tournaments that are being put on by these massive platforms of of, of gamers. Um, maybe maybe we see something like that rising up with kind of this core user group that EA has. I'm not really sure I've seen that as much, at least recently, uh, when you consider it like an eSports platform phrased that way. I, I don't say that with EA just yet. Yeah, EA, they, they actually call it competitive gaming. So someone like Activision Blizzard is focused on the top tier of eSports. Like they want to become the ESPN of eSports broadcast, the elite gamers playing each other. Electronic Arts, up to this point, has really been focused on connecting individual gamers, so kind of the mass market, mainstream, everyday gamer. Um, so to, to that point, to that extent, I think they are approaching esports just in a, in a different uh, way than, than some of the other players. So some, something to watch, but I, I think there is a lot of promise for you know sports games to, to translate to esports. I think you know you'll watch people you know playing basketball, hockey, soccer, what have you. One other thing we noticed is that um, they've got an existing stock or purchase plan for $500 million that's still existing, and then they've just authorized another one for $500 million, too. So they could be buying back within about 5% of shares within the, the next year, um, which I think is a pretty good capital allocation decision, too. You like, like to see that? You like that move? I think so. Time Warner's second quarter profits came in higher than expected. Um, 
what's getting more attention, and probably rightly so, Simon, is the fact that Time Warner also revealed that it has taken a 10% stake in the video streaming service Hulu. That's opening some eyes. Pretty interesting, uh, because Hulu now has got Fox and Disney and Time Warner now and Comcast as investors. It's a company that's worth about $6 billion out there. I was going to say, are those big companies? Right. Huge companies. But, <laughs> in the but, entertainment Hulu, but, but Hulu is, is, okay, well, I mean, let's step back and why is Hulu a big deal now? Because we're so used to these massive cable packages that have 100 channels and we're watching four of them, right? So you're, you're overpaying for, for the stuff that you don't want anymore. And Hulu is kind of compressing that into the, the shows that you love and the channels that you watch. Uh, compressing it kind of like a, a, a skinny bundle or a light bundle, they'll call it. Um, which is really much more valuable for a lot of members when you're paying eight bucks a month. Um, if you have it with commercials, twelve bucks a month without commercials. That's a lot less than my cable bill is every month right now. I'll tell you that. Um, but it's interesting because it's also on demand. You can watch the shows that you want to watch at the time that you want to watch them, rather than having to be glued to the television at 9 p.m. Um, on a Sunday or whenever your show is 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 airing. Um, and you can watch it on a tablet or, or a mobile device, too, at any time. So, I, I like where Hulu's going, I think. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I was thinking about sort of the, the the different, you know, as you said, Simon, you get all these channels, so many of them. I mean, it's at the point now where there are channels I'm not even aware that they exist, you know. You could you could make up the name of a channel and I'd be like oh yeah this is that real I mean seven sixty three oh yeah seven seven sixty three yeah did you check the new uh, the new cop show on seven sixty three yeah it's it's really hit but but in thinking about you know some of the questions that have been pushed back against that over over say the last twenty years one of them one of them's like well what about local news what about this what you know um, but now you're seeing. Uh, not just the local news uh, people going over the top and sort of creating their own online experience or mobile experience, but public television as well, which was another part of the pushback. I, you know that that is top of mind to me because last night um, I watched um, the latest uh, American Experience that they did on PBS, and it was um, about the boys in the boat, which is the the best selling book about the the 1936 men's uh, U.S. men's rowing team, and just just one of those things where it's. It, they do such amazing work. It's such a phenomenal story, and and it was airing last night for the first time. So you know, sat down with my wife and my you know teenage rower, and we watched it. And it was great, but I also take heart in the fact that uh, they offer that online. So I can you know at lunch today, I can just decide, oh, I'm going to watch that again. Yeah, and the, and the two things that are enabling Hulu to be such a big deal now are really Netflix and mobile devices. Because for years, if you were a content company, you didn't have to do this. I mean, you could just keep selling to the large Comcast of the world, the uh, the cable packages, and, and make a ton of money off of it. But over time, customers start getting more demanding. They're saying, no, I want my shows now. I want to pay just, just a la carte prices for them. And now, rather than lose those customers from all the cord cutting we're hearing about the last couple of years, saying, hey, let's keep them. Let's just kind of tone it down and charge 12 bucks a month over an easy-to-use platform like a Hulu. Um, rather than, than just completely losing those customers altogether. All right, before we wrap up, let's dip into the full mailbag. Marketfoolery at fool.com is our email address. From Andy Schneider, uh, who wrote in regarding the conversation we had on Motley Fool Money uh, last weekend about which is going to be the first company to hit a market cap of $1 trillion. Andy writes, as a foolish investor, I'm thinking about investing for the next 30 or 40 years. I'm wondering, who do you think will be the first company to $10 trillion? Do any of the current, which 
when I, I'll be honest, Andy, when when I first read your email, I rolled my eyes. I was like, "Come on, man, we're not even at <laughs> one trillion. You're asking about ten trillion? But he goes on, and and th- this is why I like this question. He, he goes on to write, "Do any of the current one hundred billion dollar plus companies have enough room to run over the next forty years to be one hundred baggers, or does there need to be another seismic shift?" To warrant such seismic numbers. Moreover, does this company already exist, or are we taking the field of non-existent competitors? Um, it's an interesting question. I think I think the mindset is is absolutely perfect. I don't know how old Andy is, but just the mindset of someone thinking forty years out and thinking about the possibility of the one hundred bagger. David, we've talked before about David Gardner, mm-hmm. um, who has at least one one hundred bagger in his portfolio um, with Amazon that he purchased first in he purchased his first shares in nineteen ninety seven. Um, so it, it doesn't necessarily have to take forty years to get a one hundred bagger if you're patient. No, absolutely not. And it's kind of exciting to think, hey, a hundred bagger today could come from a hundred billion dollar company if and when we get to that point where a company's at Ten trillion dollar market cap. I a, a couple companies came to my mind, and uh, those were Alphabet and Amazon. Um, with, with Amazon, you have a company that still just has a fraction of total retail sales in the U.S. and globally, and I think it's inevitable that more uh, retail sales will happen online, just in the U.S., which tends to to be a leader in terms of e-commerce sales. Less than eight percent of total retail sales happened online. So, you know, l- looking out over the next Several decades, I think it's inevitable that that number ticks up, and certainly, I, I think Amazon has a very strong competitive position. Then you have stuff like Amazon Web Services, and who knows what else Jeff Bezos is working on. And, and to that extent, I also think Alphabet has um, pretty good prospects to continue growing for a very long time. A strong competitive position uh, as more uh, ad dollars and marketing dollars go online. I think uh, Google's in a strong position to capture that. Then you have their other bets segment, uh, whatever else Google X or Google Ventures is working on. Um, so I think that that's another company that over time can expand or maintain their competitive position and uh, make other investments that could propel them to the trillions. Simon, why, why stop there? How about quadrillion? What's, what's the first quadrillion dollar? <laughs> we'll see if we live long enough to see <laughs> yeah, that. Exactly. Uh, David and I were actually talking about this with our CEO Tom Gardner last night at dinner about what the first one trillion dollar company could be. Same question that, that you ask on the air, Chris. And I, I voted for that one for Facebook. Uh-huh. Um, but ten trillion, you know, a ten bagger from a trillion dollar company. I, I have to go with you on this one, David, and say Alphabet hmm. because of those other bets. Those are not. Those are not going after small industries. You're going, you know, Google Fiber is going after internet service providers. That's a hundred billion dollar market in the U.S. alone last year. Um, their cloud business is is just a small piece of this incredibly fast growing uh, cloud computing services business. And just as we see this shift from from core search and advertising on that core search to facilitating the transactions where you just pick up a smartphone and say, hey, book me an Uber. There's got to be a level or a platform above that that consolidates all of these apps that are on an operating system like an Android device. Um, And I think Google's in the right place to do that. So I I think there's a lot of upside for them. I'm voting for Alphabet. Yeah, I think if you're just thinking in terms of, well, who gets there first, it's smart to start with the companies that are the closest at this point, right. Uh, that being said, uh, you know the, the the second part of Andy's question, where he's thinking about it in terms of just you know the universe of stocks, a hundred billion and higher. It's not quite at a hundred billion, but Starbucks has a market cap just north of eighty billion, and that's a company that I just think forty years from now 
Because if you're looking that far out, part of your mindset has to be, well, is this going to be around in this iteration? It's hard for me to imagine that the business of Starbucks looks a whole lot different in 40 years than it does right now. And again, the fact that they sell a legally addictive product <laughs> helps them. That helps. <laughs> I would also keep it keep an eye on healthcare companies. I think over the next several decades, as you see, you know, a revolution in healthcare, cancer cures and treatments, companies like Gilead or Celgene, which are already quite sizable, could potentially become much bigger if they are able to treat or and or cure some diseases that are still very prevalent today. So, right. th- those will be other ones I keep an eye on. All right. Thanks for being here, guys. David Kretzman, Simon Erickson. Appreciate it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.